Welcome to the Fifth Estate. They bring you the story. We bring you the truth. The Fifth Estate is the news behind the headlines, holding those in power in check. And now, with the real story, here's Cameron Blewett. And here we are uh, once again with Robin Tudor. Uh, now, for those of you who like trigger warnings, this is going to be a um, potentially upsetting episode for a lot of people because we are going to be talking about veganism. Uh, this has been uh, brought about because of some things, things that I'll get into later on, but uh, before I do, I just want to let you know, if you're upset by people talking about veganism or anything like that and you really need a trigger warning, well, this is not the podcast for you to listen to. That being said, welcome back to The Fifth Estate, Robin. Hello, Cameron. Trigger warnings to discuss veganism. What has the world turned into? I know, I know. And I thought about it and I thought, no, if I don't let people know it's coming, someone's going to mouth off somewhere about it. Oh, what are you just doing pushing vegans? So I'll give, as much as I don't like the term, I'll give the snowflakes their trigger warning and I'll let you know we're going to be discussing some upsetting subjects, uh, upsetting topics, subjects and content. So that being said, how are you? I am well, except I'm really hot. I mean, it's ridiculously hot here today. Oh, yes, you're in Queensland and, and we're in, um, thanks to, to climate change and global warming, I think we've got about 17 degrees down here in Melbourne today. Well, uh, I'll double you plus, yeah. Oh, oh yuck. <laughs> yuck. So, all right, we'll, um, we'll try and make this quick for you so you can go somewhere where it's a little bit cooler. Um, go, go and soak myself in an ice bath, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, as, as I mentioned in the um, the intro, we're going to be talking about veganism. Um, the reason that I've I've reached out to you uh, for for this subject, and the reason that I'm dedicating a whole episode to this, is twofold. Really, um, I am noticing a bit more listening to um, what could be called is probably going to be called uh, right-wing or conservative podcasts. I've noticed a lot of them um, throwing in comments about consumption of animal products and, and things like that. Now, if it hadn't been just once in a while, I could have let it go as, yep, someone's just talking about something. Though lately it seems to be becoming a bit more frequent. So I think that there's a bit of a push there to to push obviously the, the consumption of animal products and obviously if that's what you want to do that's what you want to do uh, though I'm starting to notice that or, or starting to, to form the opinion that those that are that are pushing it are doing the same thing that we're accusing the the left of with their grooming of children by just pushing things out and and I'm not equating the two don't don't jump up and down and say that I'm equating the two, and I'm not. I'm just putting it out there that, you know, you're, you're bringing in little bits and things and, and little things to normalise something, to normalise something when, is it normal? Well, that's debatable um, for that one. So I, I thought I'd get you on, Robin, so you can talk about more of the the clinical um, mumbo-jumbo stuff that, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, yeah, sure, and, let's And do all it. that sort of stuff. So um, now... One thing that, and putting it out there, and I know we've mentioned it before, but I, I think that the um, 
vegan movement, for want of a better term, is a lot to blame for this because they've allowed themselves to be co-opted by the uh, plant-based agenda people and uh, there's going to come a time where I think they're going to even condone the consumption of crickets um, and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think that as as a wider... Would that, be a, would that be an interesting dilemma for them to face? I mean, those who've really gone hard for the, you know, go vegan to save the environment uh, argument. And, and by the way, I mean, there, there are some genuine issues, uh, genuine environmental consequences, negative environmental consequences of raising animals for food in the way that it's currently done, mm. we'll come back to that point. Mm. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really talking about the people in the plant-based world who have jumped on the notion that well, animal agriculture is this major contributor to climate change, climate change in inverted commas, and so they're they're pushing this really, really hard. Like this is why you should go vegan, go vegan to to save the planet, right? Um, and, and so won't it be a dilemma if the powers that shouldn't be are saying, well, hey, don't eat the cow, eat the cricket, what are these people going to say who've, who've been advocating specifically climate change reasons as the primary motivation or the primary reason why you should go vegan? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting dilemma, isn't yeah. it? You know, and how do you, how do you rate the moral um, – uh, the morality or otherwise of, of intensively farming insects for food as opposed to intensively farming animals. Are you still there? Hello? Yeah, no, I'm here. Sorry, you dropped out for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jeez, modern technology yep, is I, good. We live in such oh, a is, wonderful first world country. <laughs> Yeah. Far out Brussels sprout. Anyway, um, so yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that, that I won't say bugs me a lot because really I, I doesn't give a whoop to you either way, but this this whole um, negative connotation with, with the whole soy boy thing and mm. um, understanding that, as I've said before, the vegan community's done a lot to bring it on themselves and they've, I think that they've, adopted the the philosophy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which is why they've got in bed with the Gateses and, and all that sort of yes. stuff, um, you know, pushing their non-animal agriculture-based, uh, you know, um, um, products. So I, I think that the whole thing with the, the soy boy does, you know, it, it's painting something out there that if the tables were reversed, then... Obviously, the ones pushing it wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't be considering it to be just a, an uh, innocuous comment. So, so let's talk about that now. One mm. thing um, talking about soy is that mm. supposedly it gives you the moves and it lowers your testosterone level and it makes you this and makes you that. Now we've seen mm. a number of uh, vegan weightlifters and um, uh, bodybuilders and all that sort of stuff. So we know that that's. Uh, you know, a load of bullshit there. 
Um, oh, so- it's it's absolute bunkum. And I mean, if you if you think that soy causes moves, then why weren't moves a problem in Korean men or Japanese men? Or you know, it's not that it's not that soy was a staple item of the diet in all of China, but certainly in the regions of China where where soy has historically been the staple food. Why don't you see moves in those men? It just it, it defies logic. So yes, the idea that that soy gives men moves, that soy makes you know five year old girls start their periods. I mean, again, how ridiculous! It was. It's well known that up until uh, up until certainly into the early years of the twentieth century, the average age of menarche in Chinese girls was uh, in rural areas at the very least was was around seventeen. So if these girls who were barely eating any animal products and whose staple items of diet were vegetables, rice and, and soy, if they weren't starting their period until the age of 15, like what, what is this notion that soy is an endocrine disruptor? It's just frankly ridiculous. And, 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 you know, and, and that's the thing. That's, I've you know, mentioned, obviously I haven't mentioned that one, but you know, talking about the moves and all that sort of stuff is that how can you equate it to that when – there's so much other stuff. Oh, but it's you know it's the soy products in this. Okay, but look at the excessive consumption of the the shit food that they eat, and for, I don't know how else to describe it, and the um, sedentary lifestyle that we leave. So lead. So isn't that a contributor to the moves? Oh no no no, it's all soy. Okay, well. Yes, again, I mean, if you look at the, the ingredients list on a typical sort of processed vegan food, it, there, there are 20 to 30 ingredients in there, most of them unpronounceable. And, and to say that any, any adverse health effects that result from the consumption of that food uh, uh, pertain or, or are exclusively attributable to the soy in it, it's just, again, it's so ridiculous. Uh, and, I mean, even, um, you know, a lot of the... Um, non-vegan products have soy in it because it's just one of those cheap things. It's like the Americans put what is it, mm. high fructose corn syrup into everything. Um, yes. Because it's, yes, it's and, and other food. other products of corn as well. You know, mm. the starch from the corn, for instance, pops up in in just zillions of different processed foods. And the oil, by the way, yeah, that that corn plant bits of your fractionated bits of that corn plant end up in all sorts of processed foods. Does that mean that eating corn is bad? I mean, you know, ask the the Native Americans for whom corn was a staple item of their diet for you know for for centuries, if not for millennia. It, it's, it ain't the food, it's what you do with the food. Mm. And, of course, you know, we, we've seen the vegan movement infiltrated, co-opted, dragged off course, um, uh, whatever you want to call this. We've seen it infiltrated by big business, by big food. And big food, of course, just sees vegans as another market share. So, it, Back back in the back in the era when when the term veganism was first coined, and really for the first several decades of where, where veganism was a thing, the only choice that you had if you went vegan was to eat a healthy diet because there wasn't any processed vegan rubbish. So you were going to eat fruits and vegetables, and you were going to eat whole grains and starchy uh, starchy foods like potatoes and 
and sweet potatoes and you were going to eat legumes and you were going to eat nuts and seeds and that's a pretty damn healthy diet like it's hard to argue with that diet the only thing that you would have had to make sure of is that you were getting adequate vitamin b12 but apart from that it's it's got everything you know so yes and now we're in this in this weird situation where you've got uh, these these titans of the food industry invading the vegan space and and pushing out all of these absolutely garbage products you know vegan magnums and and vegan vegan snack foods and vegan cheeses that that have the consistency of plastic and vegan fake chicken nuggets i mean what the hell this is what vegans used to eat yeah i mean i i know you know 30 odd years ago when i Vegan? Yeah, nearly 30 years. Um, you know, if I wanted to go and eat out, the only place I could eat was Chinese because they had their deep-fried bean curry. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that was that was my treat. You know, if I used to go out and, you know, want junk food, um, I'd go and get Chinese food. Nowadays, it, it's it's everywhere. Um, yes. And all that sort of stuff. And, it will, you know, there wasn't the um, plethora of um, burgers and, and all that sort of stuff, so I made a lot of the stuff at myself at home with tofu or even using TVP uh, and, mm. and things like that. So, yeah, I think that the change in diet or the change in availability of food has that. So just one thing before we start talking about the, the nitty-gritty um, uh, medical and health and, and all that sort of stuff side of it, one thing I found interesting about this whole uh, push with, with everything vegan-related is that when you, according to to some of the the, the uh, more prominent voices, uh, for want of a better term, in, in once again the, the loosely defined vegan community, uh, they're always pushing mm. that the um, original coiners of the term, like the Donald Watsons and the Leslie Crosses and things like that, uh, were socialists and they had their socialist intent behind it, and. You know that that socialism was the way to go, um, and you know along that sort of stuff. And I know, um, uh, forget his name. Um, he's pushing socialism and anti-capitalism and everything like that. Yet mm. this seems to be the very thing that they're embracing and that they're going full steam ahead on. Is as you said, big food pushing all these. You know, plant-based or you know, plant-based products, um, and and the whole yes. mass production of it. Oh, let's go and buy something. Well, mm-hmm. why not make it at home? That mm-hmm. way, you know what's in it. There's not all those yes. in- big words in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's it's a really interesting point that that you raise. Um, I so I have a couple of observations on that. First up, again, back in the early days of of veganism, because there were so few people who were vegan and who wanted. I mean, you know, vegetarianism has a, a long, 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 long history you know, stretching at least back to Pythagoras. But in terms of modern vegetarianism, you might say we're we're talking about a movement that began at some point in the nineteenth century. I think mid nineteenth century is when you started to get you know a lot of people like Sylvester Graham and Harvey. Kellogg and so forth, uh, talking about vegetarianism as being the road to health. But but um, vegetarians still ate dairy, and then along comes veganism and says, well, actually, no, we don't want to eat dairy, don't want, don't want to eat eggs either. And so the only way 
that people were going to get, you know, for instance, soy milk, if they didn't want to, you know, <laughs> make the soy milk themselves at home, was they had to buy it from people who were who were um, starting small businesses to provide things like soy milk and tofu and TVP to the tiny, tiny market of vegans because no no big food manufacturer was interested in making that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it's just it, – it, it's totally absurd to be – conflating, I suppose, you know, veganism with socialism when, as I say, I mean, veganism by its very nature encouraged entrepreneurialism because, you know, not every vegan wanted to make their own soy milk. Some of them wanted to buy the stuff. So, you know, you, it, it, like not not that I've ever eaten it, not that I'm advocating it, but you look at a, at a product like Tofurky, you know, the original kind of vegan meat substitute for people to take to the Thanksgiving feast that looked vaguely like turkey, mm. right? And it was it was just started in someone's kitchen. Mm. That's entrepreneurialism. That's the free market at work. And, of course, you know, Tofurky became um, more and more popular because there were people who, who wanted the convenience of a product that was already made. Yeah, no big business was going to make a product like that back in the day. Mm. Mm. And, I mean... Um, so yeah, that's that's the thing that that gets me is that you know they're pushing the whole thing that you know that they had socialist tendencies in their view and all that sort of stuff when it really doesn't mm. make sense to to you know to the understanding and of I think, veganism. I think that is, I think the historical roots of uh, again, as I say, the the at least the modern version of vegetarianism, the the roots in the last mm, probably century and a half are, I think, part of part of what is creating this pushback against vegetarianism and veganism in the so-called freedom movement. Because when, you know, uh, for, for instance, George Bernard Shaw, who we know was a prominent advocate for vegetarianism and Many people have now seen that rather notorious clip of of him. Um, it's you know doing the rounds on the internet where he he basically says, "Look, uh, once a year, everyone should have to come before a specially convened <laughs> panel and give a reason why they shouldn't be put to death. And yes. if they can't, if they can't justify their continued existence on this planet, well, you know, be off with it. Then we do it kindly and nicely, you know. But um, um, and, and so people people see that." And then find out George Bernard Shaw was a vegetarian, and and George Bernard Shaw was a Fabian socialist, which he was. Oh my God, that's what all vegetarianism is about. And so it's this, it's this uh, it, uh, guilty by association, right? Tarring the entire notion of vegetarianism and veganism, and really any ethical, um, any ethical argument against the eating of animals with these political principles of socialism, which they reject, and and which I agree they should. Reject. I mean, um, Peter Singer does a good job as well, um, though technically <laughs> I don't think he is vegetarian. Uh, oh, sorry, he's vegan. I think he is um, vegetarian or, or, or something like that. Um, and I mean, well, he makes an argument that oysters don't really have any rational self-interest, so you could yeah. eat them, you know. Okay. <laughs> and, and and also and also it's fine it's fine to kill babies because they similarly don't really have any any rational um, interest. Like they 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 can't make plans or yeah. um, you know have wishes in life, and so uh, you know it's ethical to kill them. Um, and, I mean, that's, so, that's, yeah, he's a problem. So yeah, going back to back to the oysters thing. 
Um, I, was, I was listening to one podcast and one chef turned around and said, yeah, oysters are vegan because they have no this, that and everything else. Okay. Even mm. if they were, would you really want to eat something that is the filter for the ocean? Yes, yes, I know. Given the contamination yes. levels in in oysters, given the role that they play, you know, as you say quite rightly, they they are filters of of uh, seawater, which you know, unfortunately, and and this is what humans do have to answer for. We've made the rivers and the oceans a, a, a toxic waste dump. So, yeah, the idea that you're going to consume the flesh of a, a filter feeder like like oysters, woo-hoo, good luck with yeah. that. You know, um, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing it. I'm not for that no no i mean even before i was vegan um well no, they didn't interest me for for some reason i mean no not much seafood mm. interested me either um but yeah. the, the old swallowing phlegm problem with yeah. oysters yeah yes <laughs> um so yeah going back to a bit more to the the um before we, as i said before we get into the health and all, all that sort of stuff mm. um have you noticed what you know? What I led with was it's becoming a little bit more often, and it's it's becoming too frequent to be coincidental or to be an innocent. So, I mean, I'm I'm happy to say, call me a conspiracy theorist, or whatever you want. I really don't give a whoopty, um, but I, I seem to think that there is a bit more of a concerted campaign um, to do that. And going on with that, the, the, the second part of the question, sort of comment that I want you to to respond with is that you did mention the freedom movement. Now, I know mm. we've discussed it off air and all that sort of stuff and we'll admit as, as a vegan living in Victoria, um, we don't have the, the best name thanks to people like Andy Medic and, and Ben Schultz oh who, who wants God, to promote the, yeah. the Shooter Fishers Party because they're not cookers and, yeah. and nut jobs. Um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, what mm. is it? I mean, is it? You know, do we need to start our own little counter, our freedom, freedom movement or, or, or anything like that? And, I mean, what's going on in the world? Yeah, um, I, I'd be, I'd be really, I'd be really concerned about that because it's yet another divide and conquer uh, strategy. Now, am I saying that this is a deliberate strategy? I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be prepared to lay odds on that. Here's what I think is going on. So, number one, as, as I mentioned, many of these proponents of vegetarianism beginning in the probably mid to late 19th century, they they had some pretty wacky ideas, right? And, I mean, so take, take Kellogg, um, Harvey Kellogg, as in, you know, founder of Kellogg Cereals. Mm. He had some um, extremely bizarre ideas and he did actually promote vegetarianism as a way to, um, as a way for people to sort of, men in particular, to, to dampen down their, their lusts, shall we say. And, of course, this is this is complete bunkum, and we'll get to this in a moment, you know, what, what studies of the impact of... Um, plant-based diets and soy in particular, uh, what, what they do to hormones and testosterone and sex drive and all the rest of it. Um, so so this, this was just a, a wacky idea that Kellogg had, but he pushed it pretty hard. And so, um, so people who were kind of just getting into the freedom movement, when they come across uh, the writings of, of, you know, people like Kellogg and Bernard Shaw and so forth, um, I, I think they, they just have this sort of reflexive revulsion, which is perfectly understandable. Like they see, they see these people who are advocating avoiding the eating of animal products 
um, as, as a means for engineering society. And they assume that that represents all of vegetarians and all of veganism and, and that it's not possible to have an ethical uh, objection to the consumption of animals in circumstances where, they are, where that is not required to support life and health. Okay, and I'm, I'm throwing that in because there's going to be someone who says, but what about the Maasai? Okay, fine. The Maasai live in a part of the world where you can't grow crops. Okay, we don't. You know, I live and you live in a country with an incredibly abundant food supply. We can meet all of our nutritional needs by eating plants. We have no ethical, we, we have no, we have no, um, survival requirement to consume animal products. And so, you know, my, my stance uh, as an ethical vegan is that if, if there is no requirement on me to take life in order to sustain my own, then I have no moral right to take life. And, you know, it's central to, uh, uh, to libertarianism um, to, uh, to, to accord with the non-aggression principle. Okay, mm. so if if something or someone does not aggress upon you, then you have no right to inflict violence upon it. Um, it's it's fine to to defend yourself against violence, and and again, you know, this is another another. Um, stupid thing that people say to justify meaning. Well, if you were being attacked by a lion, would you kill it? Um, yeah, I would actually. I'd prefer to have a tranquilizer gun with me, but but if I didn't, then mm. then I, and I knew how to shoot a, a gun that actually killed a, a tiger, yeah, I'd shoot it, okay, because that's my life on the line. How is that relevant to me, you know, living in Queensland? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are hypotheticals. I mean, just same as if, you know, uh, uh, and you know, a, a rabid Alex Jones came after me, uh, and all that sort of. I'd still have no qualms putting him down, and mm, um, mm-hmm. for that, yep. because as you've said, it's it's that whole non-aggression principle, and your life is at, at risk. And um, yes. yeah, it's it's the thing. And and okay, okay, let, let's go there. Let's go into the the the. Desert Island hypothetical that I'm sure you've had oh God, a number of times. Oh, God, you want to go times. there? Okay. <laughs> well, why not? Um, now, um, my thoughts on that um, vary because, hey, if the island is big enough to support enough um, life there that there are wild animals running around, then there should be enough plant material for you to survive long enough to mm. be rescued and I'm talking about surviving, I'm not talking about thriving and, and creating an infrastructure and, and infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. I'm talking about surviving. Mm. The other side of the coin is, is that if there's not, and it is a matter of survival, well, you've got to make the decision. I mean, you know, in survival situations, cannibalism is condoned. So Yes. It's, there it's, have been instances of that where yeah. where people have, you know, drawn lots or whatever have you, or or just say, um, when someone dies, uh, unfortunately, they they are eaten by the survivors. Yeah, it, it, it's happened in multiple settings, and people have a great deal of revulsion toward it. Uh, the survivors do frequently live with with just this this guilt, you know. But um, it's what people do to survive, and I I would not uh, I, I would not judge or blame anyone for either, you know, taking an animal life. I mean, look, I'd have qualms about taking a human life in order to support you, and I think that's different to just eating someone once they're already dead. Mm. 
Mm. <laughs> you know, like there is a difference. Um, yeah. But but again, this is not the circumstance that we're all living in currently. So I I, I find these hypotheticals uh, just just really quite ridiculous. Um, let's let's have this conversation if we ever get stuck on a desert island. Okay, we're not there now. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Fi- final final thoughts on the whole desert island scenario. I mean, um, the. You, you, if you don't know how long you're going to be stuck on said desert island before you get rescued and you're going around killing the animals willy-nilly, well, they're a finite resource. You know, yeah. you're going to run out of them pretty soon. So use your brain, find out what those animals are eating and then go to that food yeah. source. I mean, it's, it's a, a, loosely that rule of threes. I mean, you know, being on a desert island with, with an animal running around, I mean, I think you've got the priority of, of hope. You know, the rule of three, mm. three seconds without hope, three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. Though adding on to that mm. is mm-hmm. the environment, the shelter. So, I mean, you know, your first one, have you got mm. the hope that you're going to survive? Well, if you know you are, well, yes. if it's going to be three weeks, mate, I'll just starve myself for three weeks or I'll eat grass for three weeks or, or something like that. Um, yep. So there, there's no need to, you know, to, to go out and, and just – randomly start killing things um and all that but yeah yes it's it's just one yeah. of those gotchas that um people love throwing out um for that yeah. one so and and to me to me it's just it's a way of sidestepping the the real moral issue that we have to address here which is that uh, like I said before, you know, the non-aggression principle is, is central to libertarian philosophy. And it's very, very straightforward. You know, don't hurt other people. Don't take their stuff. You know, don't aggress upon them. And and my question is, why, why is that only applied to humans? Now, there's, there, there are complex roots to this. And I do think that... Um, uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition has a lot to answer for in this, and it's an argument that that is frequently made by. You know, I hate these labels, but let, let's just call them the Christian right. That well, God gave us dominion over the animals, and so we can eat them if we like. Um, now, of course, if you if you go and read the Old Testament, you read Genesis. What God said initially to to Adam and Eve was, "Here, I, I put everything in the garden for you. Knock mm. yourselves out. You got fruit. You got leaves. Like, what else do you want? You know." <laughs> um, it was only once they'd sinned, once they'd eaten of the tree of of, of knowledge, and and got cast out of the garden, that God said, "Oh, look, all right then. Oh, all right, I'm not happy about." it but but okay you can go and kill animals um and i think that's that it's that kind of rearrangement of the rules that that christians sort of point to and say well see god said it's okay and again i mean i i would argue if, if you if you are trying to like if you if you see it as part of your um mission as a christian to make life better on earth, like why aren't you trying to head back to to how things were in the Garden of Eden? I don't know. I mean, it, it's a it's a discussion that I would love to have with a with a believing Christian because it it seems rather obvious to me that uh, there should be some aspiration to um uh, to to restore the circumstances under which you know life 
was was first created if if you buy into Christian theology. Yeah, and and, and that's right. I mean, that thing is that um, obviously in the Old Testament there was supposed to be animal sacrifices as well, and then mm. the crucifixion was supposed to end those sacrifices and absolve us. Um, for want of a better term, of, of all our sins. So we didn't need to um, present a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. going by even, that... Even the story of, um, yeah, Jesus turning over the, the tables of the moneylenders. Um, who were the moneylenders? Well, they actually lent money for, for people to to buy animals to sacrifice. Mm. And so this story of Jesus going into the temple and turning over the temples, uh, turning over the tables of the moneylenders and saying, you know, get out of my father's house... Um, uh, you know, I, I have read several interpretations of this, but one of them is that Jesus was saying, "Hey, you know, don't don't kill animals. Not not cool. Not okay. Um, that's not how you show your devotion to God by like murdering His creatures." <laughs> yeah. and, and mentioning that bit too is that okay? You know, let's say we do have dominion over you know everything on the on the planet and in the waters and all that sort of stuff, um, and God's our Creator. Would he really want us treating his creations the way that we are? And to you know, to give you uh, listeners a, a bit more of a hypothetical, you've got kids, okay? You provide for your kids as much as you can. Let's say you go and you know whether you buy it because if you buy it, you're spending your time anyway, um, or you make something yourself. You give them these toys to play with, and then they decide no, they don't like the toys. They trash the toys, or they don't clean up their room, or they just mm. leave the place in. Uh, an absolute mess. Are you going to be willing and loving? Um, obviously, you will be accepting and loving of it, though you will have a response of probably, you know, um, concern. You'll discipline them for doing the wrong thing. And mm. that's the same thing is that if God created everything and not up to me to say whether he did or he didn't and, and everything like that, so I'm not having that theological argument, though it, it's the thing is that if, if animals were the creation for us to look after, isn't it our duty to look after them the best way that we can? Yeah, you'll and, let them know that this... Okay. Oh, yes. So in just in, in relation to us being stewards of the earth, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like if I gave my kids something nice and they trashed it, then I would certainly let them know that that sort of behaviour is, is unacceptable, it's not respectful, they need to clean up the mess and they, they won't be getting anything new <laughs> you know, until they've learned how to be responsible for the things that, that they have. Um, and again, I mean, I have to emphasise here that as much as I no longer buy into the idea that human activity, specifically um, burning of fossil fuels and animal agriculture and, and so forth, is is a contributor to anthropogenic climate change or a major contributor anyway. Sorry, let, let, me, let me clarify that. Um, I no longer buy into this idea that human activity is creating so many greenhouse gases that it's warming the planet. This just does not accord with the facts as, as best as I've been able to ascertain them. But we are, you know, human activity is having really negative impacts on the earth and it, we, we need to clean house. Mm. Um, this is as, as much as I am absolutely horrified by what the Dutch government is doing in forcing farmers off their land. Like the fact remains that 
in the Netherlands, there is really intensive animal agriculture. And you cannot raise animals in those kinds of, of, of conditions without generating enormous amounts of waste. So they do have a problem to deal with. What I object to is, is the standover tactics that the government is using on them, and particularly the way that the government um, – will impose these rules and regulations on the farmers and then the farmers spend money and effort to uh, to conform with those rules and regs. And then a couple of months later, the government says, oh, well, actually, no, we've uh, we've changed the rules again and now you need to do this as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's – so it, it's, it's not that I'm all in favour of Dutch farmers raising, you know, pigs and cows and sheep in tiny little, you know, barns and whatnot with gazillions of them crammed in there. I'm not in favour of that. Okay, but I'm also not in favour of their um, of them being stripped of their of their land and you know uh, uh, forced to to conform to all these insane regulations without actually getting any kind of, of assistance from the government. Um, and and of course, you know, the whole idea of what those regulations are designed to achieve mm-hmm. is is just highly yeah. questionable. Given given that you know one of the major uses that the government wants to put that that um that land that they're seizing from the farmers, you know, they they, they want to build mega cities mostly to house immigrants on. So don't tell me that, that the Dutch government is just really deeply concerned about the environment, and that's why they're doing this. That's just the smokescreen. That's the greenwashing for mm-hmm. for the the real agenda. So anyway, that that rant aside. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, and, and that's the thing. I totally agree. I mean, you know, it, it comes up with, you know, myself with my anarchistic views is that, you know, what you do with animals? I said, well, let the market decide. Get rid of mm. the, the subsidies of, of animal agriculture. Let's, you know, let's have the you know, industry group for the meat industry that as much power as the vegetable industry does. And when we know the fruit and vegetable industry and, and, and um, industry groups are as weak as um, yeah. watered down cordial. Um, yeah, they. So. But 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 you're right. I mean, fruit and vegetable growers get virtually no assistance from government. Mm. But the Meat and Livestock Corporation, you know, the the associations that represent the pig farmers and the chicken farmers and the dairy farmers, they've all got massive lobbying power. Uh, in terms of political representation, that's primarily what the National Party represents. You know, do, does the National Party represent peach growers? No, and, and, <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't exactly. Have have a big seat at the table. Yeah, the flow and effect of that is the the grain producers, um, because mm. you know grain goes to the animal feed and, and all that sort of stuff. So you know, let's get rid of the subsidies for that. Let's get rid of that. Let's let's stop this yes. this bullshit view that there's two different types of grain. One's human consumption, and one's you know uh, only good for animal feed. Well, mm. you know, if it's only good for animal feed, why is the, why does that impact? the price of the grain that's only human suitable for human consumption. So, you know, let, let's mm. stop that myth there. Um, and, and it's the thing, you know, get rid of subsidies, get rid of the government, let the market decide, you know, what happens. And I would be far more, even if it did involve animal agriculture, I'd be far more willing to accept that as long as the consumer is aware um, what's going on and everything like that. And even to the point where the consumer had to slaughter their own food. Because if yeah. we let Look, the market I, decide, yep. yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, uh, the the simple reality is that if if people want to eat, you know, pasture raised meat, they are going to have no where, where there's absolutely no 
no grains going into those animals. There's no element of intensive farming and there's no subsidies. They are going to end up paying one hell of a lot more for that meat and there will be a lot less of it Mm -hmm. because you simply can't produce the amount of meat that that you know many of these kind of chest thumping I'm in the freedom movement kind of people who who see meat eating as 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 an expression of masculinity right as as both the the cause of their high testosterone levels and the, <laughs> and and the, the 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 sort of you know the justification for it anyway um um but my, so my point is that you simply cannot feed every human on earth the amount of meat that people in the West are currently eating if that meat uh, is going to come from animals that are, you know, grazing just on, on pasture land. Okay? You can't do it. So, yeah, as you say, let the market decide, right? If, if people want to pay extra for, for those animals. And look, I've, I've heard interviews with Joel Salatin and, and farmers who, who farm like him. Um, I don't, you know, as an ethical vegan, I still clearly object to the fact that he kills the cows and the, the, the sheep and the chickens and the whatever. But it also has to be said that they're living outdoors, they're getting to, to live, you know, normal cow lives and pig lives and, and, and chicken lives. And like I say, you know, there's no way that a Joel Salatin, um, even if you multiply him by, by 100, there's no way that farmers producing animal um, flesh for consumption in that way can possibly produce as much as the current factory farming system produces. Mm. Okay. okay, and and going along with that now, one of the things that I remember from, from years ago, and I'm, I can't remember who mentioned it, but it was the thing is that a lot of the diseases that we're seeing now um, relating to our our diets and, and mainly consumption of animal products used to be way back when was um, illnesses and, and diseases associated with the kings and the elites because yes. it was only them who could afford it. Whereas, oh, and, yes, and, the diseases of royalty yeah. like Henry VIII with his obesity and his gout yes. at a time when, you know, uh, his average subject was, was skinny and malnourished and couldn't dream of having gout because they couldn't afford meat, let alone booze. Yeah. So, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, mass production and industrialise everything and I don't, it's not the market doing this. Let, let's admit it's not the free market mm. that did this. Um, is it capitalism? Well, that could be government control and, and um, I think go- capitalism today is, is more like modern-day fascism. Um, that, that there's so oh, much we, government well, control in that. Uh, yeah. Well, what we have is crony capitalism. Mm. It, it's corporate capitalism and the other name for that is is fascism. Yes. Um, it is, you know, when, when you see just how much political power, uh, backroom power, these industry lobbies wield, you realise, yeah, th- this is fascism. It is the merger of the corporation and the state. So, yeah, and, you know, that's potentially behind a lot of the push of it um but okay let's let's talk about it now uh there's you mentioned before and for some stupid i can't understand why but everyone thinks that hey you you know you eat red meat it puts um getting a bit crude here puts lead in your pencil and and all that Mm. sort of stuff um so i don't think it is and i remember peter as, as much as I don't like talking about Peter and the ads that they produce, um, they produced one that said the opposite. So who's right? Mm. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, you raise a really interesting point, and again, I there, there are there are so many uh, so many um, uh, spokes to this wheel. I mean, I can't help but think that this notion that eating animals, uh, as you say, puts blood in your pencil, it, it's not dissimilar to kind of primitive ideas that, you know, for instance, um, if you defeat an enemy in battle and you eat his heart, then you'll you'll take on his strength or yes. courage. Yep. Or that, or you know, if you eat a rhino, it'll be good for your, for your own horn. Yeah, I was going yeah, to mention all of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, which, I mean, we, we laugh at it because it's just so silly. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, and, and yet, you know, here we are dealing with it now. Um, so... Okay, let's let's unpack one of the primary arguments that that's made. It, it goes back to this this slur that you mentioned before of the soy boy, and there is this uh, really really pervasive notion that soy products contain estrogen, and that if you consume soy products then your estrogen levels will rise and uh, as a consequence, your testosterone levels will fall and all this sort of nonsense. All right, let's let's start with the absolute basics. Estrogen, along with testosterone and progesterone and cortisol and aldosterone, these are steroid hormones. Now, steroid doesn't mean, you know, stuff that guys take to, to build up muscles at the gym. Steroid just means made from cholesterol. Okay, so a steroid hormone is made from cholesterol. What is cholesterol? Well, cholesterol is a fatty, waxy substance that is made solely in the livers of animals. So coli means liver. Sterol means it has a particular structure um, involving six carbon rings. Okay, that's the sterol part of it. So I'm not going to beat anyone over the head with the chemistry. That's that's just the basics that you need to understand. So um, cholesterol made in the liver. Last time I checked, soybeans don't have livers nor does any other plant. So there is no plant that can make steroid hormones because plants lack livers. They can't make cholesterol. If you if you don't have cholesterol, you can't make a steroid. Now, what plants make are um, compounds called... The, when they're originally identified, they were called phytosterols, so phyto meaning plant, um, because they have this, again, this six-carbon ring structure, okay? So they, they have this sterol that's uh, uh, chemically similar to cholesterol, similar but different, okay? So you can't make estrogen out of a phytosterol. It's a different compound. Uh, what what plants do make is a variety of phytosterols that bind to hormone receptors in the human body, uh, but in, uh, in the process of that binding, they don't activate the full suite of activities that the, the hormone that would normally bind to, to that receptor activates, okay? So let's take an example. Estrogen, which is, of course, a steroid hormone made in the ovaries of women, and the adrenal glands and fat cells of both sexes. Um, estrogen binds to two types of receptors in the human body, estrogen receptor 1 and estrogen receptor 2. Uh, soy isoflavones bind very weakly to estrogen receptor 1 and very strongly to estrogen receptor 2. Now, again, I, I'm not going to go on too much about the boring biochemistry and biology and whatever. Just suffice it to say that... Estrogen receptor 2 
does not occur in human breast tissue. So this notion that, that women shouldn't have soy because it causes breast cancer is, is just flat out ridiculous. I mean, we know from the epidemiological literature that, that rates of breast cancer are lower in soy-consuming populations. Um, ditto for, for uterine cancer. Now, on the, on the testosterone front, again, I mean, um, we've got very, very strong evidence from a whole range of studies. And you actually, you know, sent me to, uh, you know, before we spoke today, that show this, you know, men who consume soy do not have lower testosterone levels, nor do they have lower testosterone activity than, than men who aren't consuming soy. Mm. So, I mean, anyway, so many things with, with that that I wanted to say that I, I've lost track of the whole thing. Okay, so one thing with that. Okay, let's let's sort of a little bit of a sidetrack off it. Now, we're told that we need to eat red meat for the protein and everything like mm-hmm. that. Now, my understanding from basic nutrition when I did my personal training, um, Cert 3 and Cert 4 and all that sort of kerfuffle, was that and and please correct me if I'm mistaken here. I'm happy to acknowledge that. Was and um, my understanding was that the human body is inherently lazy. Okay, so that's why we build muscles so we don't have to exert the same amount of energy to do the same thing um, and, and everything like that. So that being said, is that when the human body has a complete protein, it breaks it down into incomplete proteins, and then uses the relevant incomplete proteins to form protein within itself. Am I right so far? It's kind of sorta. Let, let me just um, let me just reply the corrective. Okay, so when you eat any food that contains protein, which is basically like if it if it actually qualifies as a food, it contains protein. Yeah, the essential right? amino so what, acids. Yep. Yeah. So so what doesn't contain protein? Well, sugar, oil, you know, really refined starches. Um, so all all foods that actually qualify for the title foods contain proteins, and proteins are made from um, mixtures of different composition of amino acids. There are 20, some textbooks say 21, amino acids of, of which nine are considered essential. Uh, that is, you can't make them yourself in your own body um, from, from other materials. And then the remainder are, are non-essential, which means that they can be made from other materials, including other amino acids. Um, but there are also some cases where, for instance, certain um, certain amino acids can be made from B vitamins. Okay. Um, um, so, uh, pl- so yeah, animal proteins are widely known as being complete proteins because the ratio of essential amino acids that they contain is pretty close to what you see occurring in human flesh. And that kind of stands for reason because cow muscle isn't that different to human muscle, for instance. Um, now, plants do contain all amino acids, all essential amino acids. Uh, this this is something you, you read all the time. Ah, plants don't contain all the essential amino acids. Yes, they do, because the only thing in nature that makes all the essential amino acids is plants, okay? <laughs> that there is no animal that makes all the essential amino acids. So if, the, if you find the essential amino acids in the flesh of an animal, it's because it ate a plant that actually made those um, those uh, those amino acids, right? Mm. Um, but it is true that uh, the vast majority of plant foods, with soy being quite a notable exception, do have what we call a limiting amino acid, which means that there's uh, there's one of the essential amino acids that, that is just a little bit short. Like it's still there. 
in the plant. And if you ate uh, enough calories of that plant, you would actually meet your requirement for that essential amino acid. But um, in its ratio to the other essential amino acids is, 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 is low, okay? So how do we solve that problem? Well, don't just eat one food. Mm. <laughs> eat a, eat a, 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 a decent variety of different foods they don't all have to be eaten in the same meal by the way your body's not that stupid uh, if you ate some oats for breakfast and some lentils for lunch for instance and some broccoli for dinner you'd uh, and you ate enough calories for, from those foods you'd actually secure your requirement for all of the essential amino acids and, and it's a no-brainer don't forget too that the majority of the body's protein needs each day are actually made by recycling uh, body protein. So in other words, body proteins, um, and this includes muscle, this includes enzymes and, and other components of digestive juices. Uh, the majority of the, the body's proteins, um, well, so, sorry, there is a substantial daily turnover of proteins in which old worn out proteins break down, uh, they're decomposed into their constituents and then they're recycled. So we actually make up a, a good portion of our daily protein requirement by eating ourselves. <laughs> yeah, so this whole essential, non-essential amino acid thing is, is just, it, it, it is a non-issue except in people who, due to um, impoverishment and severe limitations in, in their availability of foods, are forced to subsist on extremely low-quality, starchy foods. So, so you know, you do see issues with protein um, inadequacy in regions of Africa where, for instance, they're dependent for a good part of the year on, on cassava, which is pretty, you know, it's a low-protein crop and then it's uh, it's quite lacking in some of the essential amino acids. Sorry, that was a really, really long-winded um, answer to, to your question. No, 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 but, no. But that, that's it, the it deal when one. it comes to essential and, and, and non-essential amino acids. It, it required one. So anyway, just while we're, we're still talking about the, the, the whole protein thing, um, is it fair to say that... Um, a lot of the illnesses and, and diseases and um, diet-related problems that we are having as modern society are related to, I'm not saying all as, as in a whole, but it relates more to an excess of protein rather than a lack of protein? Maybe. Is it fair to it's, say that? It's hotly disputed in the world of nutrition, mm. okay? So you've got... Uh, you've got researchers who are experts on longevity, like Volta Longo, who are very, very firmly convinced that the major step that we need to take to, to reach the, the maximum possible human lifespan is to restrict protein intake uh, during the period of adulthood, so not not in not in infancy and, and childhood and adolescence when you're actively growing, but from the time that you reach your full adult um, size, so say mid twenties, through to mid sixties. Walter Longo says you should be eating a diet that is really kind of like on the lower the lower limit of of what's considered protein adequacy in order to maximize your lifespan potential. And then, you know, as you get older, increase the amount of protein, certainly the, the proportion of your daily food or daily calories, let's just say, that is made up of protein just because you don't want to be frail in, in your older age. Mm. And older people don't digest and absorb protein as efficiently as younger people do. 
Okay, so so you've got him arguing that on the one side. On the other side, you you've got uh, quite a contingent of researchers who say that we should be eating more protein than than we currently do, um, in order to deal with the obesity issue. And and th this is a really interesting one because there is research indicating that there is an optimal um, optimal protein amount for each species. So, in other words, the percentage of calories from protein that each animal thrives on is unique to that species. And that if animals are given a diet that that is below that in protein, they will systematically overeat. Whereas once you once you sort of give them that target, so so just say it's you know 15% calories from protein. Once they hit that target, then they actually won't overeat. Okay, um, so if you look at, at processed vegan foods, processed foods generally, they, they are much lower in protein than whole plant foods because they're primarily composed of, of starches, sugars and oils. And fillers and so they, yeah. yeah, so, you know, there's, there's no comparison between eating lentils, which, which have a, a good proportion of their, of their calories from protein, versus eating, um, I would say, even, you know, lentil chips let alone any other kind of like vegan, snacky, junky, whatever the hell food. Mm. Mm. Okay. Now, um, I'm not sure if you can answer this one because I, I should have looked at it before I started talking to you. It was just something that came along while we were talking is um, the, the protein from hemp compared to the protein from um, the consumption of animal products. How mm. does that compare and, and is it if we had a – powerful hemp industry and i'm not talking about marijuana industry and legalizing cannabis and all that sort of bullshit i'm talking about hemp mm. for consumption and um making other products that you can do with it um would that be a way forward to um satisfy the whims of, of those who are just protein obsessed yeah look i mean there's there's quite a number of foods that that are used to produce protein supplements for for vegans and these are quite popular of course in the bodybuilding community where you know it has to be said that the the evidence strongly indicates that eating a higher amount of calories from protein does does seem to assist with with growing muscle. This actually brings me to a point. I meant to mention this before, but now's now's a good opportunity to do it. What most people never really think about is that there is a trade-off between gene survival and longevity. And what, what I mean uh, what I mean by that is this. Gene survival means surviving long enough and having enough progeny to get your genes into the next generation. So it's good for my gene survival if I, uh, as a female, have a, a fairly early menarche, so I start my periods early, therefore I'm you know, reproductively capable. And if I then proceed to have multiple children, over the course of my my lifetime. So even even if I were to say, you know, die in childbirth with my 10th child, um, I've been reproductively successful because I've brought, you know, 10 children into the world. Now the 10th mightn't survive if if I die, but mm. but anyway, you get the point. I've had I've had a hell of a lot of children. Um but I'm dead at 35, okay? So what what would be better for my longevity? Um, would be if I started my, my reproductive span later and I had probably around two to three children 
and then I didn't have any more, okay? Now, um, what, what we see very clearly is that in countries where more, uh, more of the calories come from animal products, girls uh, enter puberty sooner. And so they're, they're reproductive, like they're, they, are, they are capable of having children from an earlier age. Um, is that good for them? I would argue not. Is it conducive to their longevity? No. I mean, uh, we, we've got pretty convincing evidence that there is, you know, for, for women, kind of like an optimal number of children, not too few, not too many. Um, there's, interestingly enough, there's actually uh, some <laughs> quite a dramatic shrinkage of, of brain volume that occurs uh, in, in, in pregnant women, um, and it persists for a couple of years uh, after, after the pregnancy is completed. And, Commonly um, called baby brain. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, it's in air. Uh, so the the significance of the or like the the purpose of this is thought to be that the woman um, becomes like really really focused on caregiving for the child, and that makes total sense from an evolutionary point of view. Again, I mean, um, I, I I only came across this this um, uh, this evidence quite recently, and so I haven't haven't had time to pursue it to its logical conclusion. Does this mean, for instance, that if you had 10 children, you're more likely to develop dementia? Okay, I don't know. It would seem to it would seem to to logically follow if you've had that that long of a period of brain shrinkage because you had 10 kids and and each time you you popped out a kid your brain shrank for two years. <laughs> like, you know, we, we know that there is loss of brain volume in Alzheimer's disease. We also know that one of the protective factors against Alzheimer's disease is actually education. So the higher a person's educational attainment, the lower the risk of Alzheimer's, and the more um, intellectually stimulated they, they are throughout their adult lifespan, the lower the risk of developing Alzheimer's. Now, that doesn't mean that PhDs don't develop Alzheimer's. They do. They just have a lower risk of it. Okay, so again, to, to get back to the point, what, what is good for our gene survival is not necessarily good for our personal longevity. And all of those people who, who argue, well, you know, we, we should eat meat because, um, because it, makes us, it makes us big and strong. Okay, I mean, I would argue that whether that, whether that is true or not. But here's the thing. Um, people with a higher body mass have a shorter lifespan, regardless of whether that body mass is fat or muscle. Hmm. So, so now, um, you certainly don't want to have too little muscle mass, that's bad for longevity. But it also has to be said that if you look at the, the blue zone areas, right, these little pockets of human population where they have the, the highest um, proportions of centenarians, that this is work that was begun by, uh, the work that was begun by, by Dan Butner on behalf of National Geographic. And Dan Butner is still, you know, really uh, pursuing this, this, this blue zones uh, research. Walter Longo has also looked at uh, centenarians in the blue zones and other regions and found that, in fact, they don't attain this massive muscle mass in their, uh, you know, in, in their earlier to middle adulthood. They actually have quite low muscle mass and yet they have extreme longevity, okay? So um, now, so, so back, back to this notion of, of body mass, being to some extent inversely proportional, proportional to lifespan. What this means is that if you're chugging down enormous amounts of protein and going to the gym and trying to get huge, that may not be as dangerous to your health as having the same body mass index from fat 
as opposed to muscle, but it would actually be a longevity advantage for you if you were if you had a, a, a lower body mass. Okay. Mm. Okay. And are, are we talking about sort of like body types as an ectomorph, mesomorph, and whatever the other ones are? Are we talking about just sort of like waist to hip ratio? Yeah, I'm, 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 like I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more at the at the uh, at the margins of this. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean, if if you're talking about a person who is just naturally of a pretty heavy build, um, do they have a shorter lifespan than than a person who is more lightly built? Not that I'm aware of. I'm talking more about athletes. Um, now, a lot of this research actually comes out of uh, long-term follow-up of American football players, and you know, as as you know, if you've watched any American football. Um, there, there are, and I don't even, I don't know about the positions or what their names mm. are or whatever the hell. I think there's something called a linebacker. Anyway, like these, these guys who are the size of a house, mm. you know, they are absolutely massive. And then just like you've got, um, what are they called in league wingers? I think, uh, you, you've, you've got the lightly built guys whose, whose job is, is to run. Yep. <laughs> they run the ball down the field. And then you've got the, the bricks with eyes who, uh, whose job is to, to stop the, the, yeah. the, the ball from being run down the field. Okay. So if you look at lifespans, lifespan differences uh, between these these uh, guys playing different positions in American football, what you find is that the bricks with eyes have a shorter lifespan than than the you know the lean rangy guys who do the running. Okay, mm. so again, I mean the, the the thing that the thing that sort of maximizes your um, your reproductive success, like you can. Totally, uh, I'm 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 sure that the musclier guy would be more attractive to the vast majority of women, and therefore the odds are pretty good that, in the absence of contraception, say he would be more reproductively successful. Right? Mm. In other words, he gets more chicks, he impregnates more more chicks, he gets to have more progeny. Um, so that that's good for his gene survival. Does he live a longer lifespan than the skinnier guy who has trouble picking up chicks? Probably not. Mm. Okay. So, so this this trade off in evolution between what is good for your gene survival and what is good for your personal longevity is really, really important. And what you see so much of in this kind of, you know, chest thumping, freedom movement, I eat my meat, you know, look at me gnawing on the on the leg of a live chicken kind of thing is is that they base so much of their dietary philosophy on like my guru has bigger muscles than your guru. Okay, good for him. Um, let, let's check in with him in 30 years mm. and see how he's doing. <laughs> um, and, and, well, you know, mingled in, in a couple of those circles and, and that's something that, that does, you know, um, I, it is off-putting for me um, involved in, in those circles. And, and as I mentioned to you on mm. the phone is that, you know, when we're having discussions off air and all that sort of stuff is that, you know, obviously the, the people that think along the lines that we do that aren't on their umpteenth um, jab booster and don't go for intersectionality and all this woke bullshit and are able to function as members of society, um, we there's not really much, there, there's, there's no community of our own. Because mm. it seems, you know, uh, there, there probably is if we searched online, but, um, you know, 
outside of that, I'm talking about face-to-face where you can actually, you know, see people and touch people and, you know, have that interaction with people in a um, in a social setting rather than stuck in your bedroom looking at a TV screen. Yeah, um, yeah. Screen. Look, I I get it, and I man, I really hear you. Like, I I have I have encountered um, both online and and in person some really really fabulous people in the again, you know, what do we call this thing? The freedom community. Let's just call it that. Um, who who are uh, definitely not you know, of my persuasion when it comes to dietary choices. And it's it's kind of like you've got all these other things in common with them and then you hit this this what seems like an unbridgeable chasm. But I actually think that it's really like it's incumbent upon us to, you know, as as people who are ethical vegans and also who are really pro-human freedom to point out to people that the same philosophical motivation behind our drive to promote human freedom is also the reason why we don't eat animals. We rail against the idea that that there are, you know, they, them, those, um, that you're, you're Klaus Schwab's and your, you know, bankers and your whatever the hell, um, who, who want to enslave us, who want to farm us as, as tax cattle. And, and that, that's a, it's terms like that, you know, sheep, tax cattle. These get thrown around um, by by people who are advocating for human freedom. And yet they don't seem to take the next philosophical step, which is to say, well, if if we support human freedom, why aren't we supporting animal freedom? Now, I, again, I think there are really, really deep philosophical roots, aside from the Judeo-Christian tradition, we've got the humanist tradition, which basically... Um, puts a, a line in the sand between between humans and the non-human animals. And uh, the I mean, if you look at the Declaration of Human Rights, you know, that all men are created equal and have these God-given rights and whatever. I mean, this comes out of a, a, a humanist tradition that essentially um, – essentially holds as a premise that there is something really unique and special and different about humans. Now, because humanism is uh, not not religious, you know, they don't want to invoke the idea of, of, of a God granting us human souls. By, by the way, you know, there have been arguments in the Christian church going way back about, you know, do animals have souls? Mm. Um, and there were some who said, yes, they do. Yes, they do. But they're kind of different to human souls. Like, oh, my God, what are we doing here? Talk about angel dancing on the head of a pin. You know, can we not acknowledge that animals have have desires? Animals have instincts. Animals... Um, like to find mates. Um, they they like to that uh, they like to rear young. Um, they have their particular foods that they like to eat. Like you know, animals have preferences for how they want to live their life. Um, animals experience emotions. Anyone who's ever had a companion animal knows that humans uh, that that animals have emotions. Are they as complex as human emotions? Maybe not. How the hell would we know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and so I just um in in what what I don't get right is is like people in the freedom movement are really offended by the arrogance the sheer overwhelming hubris and arrogance of these people 
these individuals who want to rule over the rest of us, who think that they are inherently superior to us, who think that they know best how many of us there should be and what we should eat and where we should live and what we should do and whether we should have children or not and what our children should learn in school, God forbid they're in school, um, and all this sort of bollocks, right? And and, and we object to that. Like, it's, it it. it, it it is just so obviously self-evidently wrong to us that there are people who want to decide what's best for us. My question is, why why can't people who see that about those who want to control humans, why can't they see that that applies to animals too? Mm. And, I mean, you know, th- this is one of the amusing things with, um, what's his name, Harari, um, about mm. his transhumanism and, and creating... Um, you know, creating a, a better homo, and he didn't call it homo sapien. He just said a, a better, better human, uh, where mm. he said that you, you know, homo deus, yeah. in fact. So, I mean, yeah. you know, we're we're getting upset about that, and yet mm. haven't bad an eyelid about the genetic engineering that we've done to chickens, we've done to cows, yeah. we've done to all sorts of animals over the period of time to make them. Um, a, a, a more valuable, no, no, a more productive resource. More useful to yeah. us, yes, yeah. yes. So um, now one, one thing with that is um, going back to, to the original thing is, um, you know, those who are pushing the socialist agenda see this as, you know, the consumption of animal products as a result of capitalism. Um, as much as I've tried to explain to them that it's not, for some reason they they're stuck in in that view that capitalism is bad. Now, my mm. view is it's because we live in a resource based society. If we, as soon as we move away from being a resource based society to, and I know we've discussed it before, to a, mm. a technology based res- society or something like that, then nothing else is a resource. So, and that inc- includes human labour, animal labour, animal body parts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to yeah, understand or, or get the, the, the wider vegan community away from the anti-capitalist view and to understand that the more that they espouse or, or the more that they, they regurgitate the, the, the rubbish from the likes of the Bill Gateses and um, everyone else and, and the, the, the Greta Thunbergs, um, who push? Who are, who are just essentially puppets? Um, you know, Gase isn't a puppet. He's yes. one of the the string pullers. But Greta's a a, a puppet. Um, she's a puppet. I mean, I actually feel really sorry for that young woman. Yeah. I I think that what her parents have done to her is is really unforgivable. Yeah. It is child abuse to to yeah. have to have steeped this poor girl who is obviously um, you know, she has some social difficulties and uh, to to have steeped her in this notion that the world's going to come to an end and it's all the fault fault of humans and it's your job to sort of save us from ourselves. Like imagine doing that to your child it yeah. is it is really disgusting and disgraceful what what her parents have done to her but you know you really you, you really saw um the the emperor without any clothes when, when Greta Thunberg said uh that that 
this whole climate change movement is about dismantling capitalism. Yes. Boom, mic drop. There it is. Yep. She just said it, folks. Are you paying attention? Yep. Um, it's it's not it's not about an environmental movement. That is a smokescreen for for a complete reordering of of the economic order for the the uh, retirement of one system of economic management, you know, um, namely uh, fiat currency and its replacement with central bank digital currency, total total centralised control over everything. And and why? Because the the banker class, not not the uh, so not not the industrial capital class, but the financial capitalist class has basically run up debt. You know, on they've they've um, they have consumed the resources of every country on earth. And when they run out of resources in one country, they just move into the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one, and they force governments into debt slavery. They've now done that to so many governments on earth. There's no one else to enslave in that way. And so they've got to demolish the existing system and set up a new system of of complete you know financial slavery, mm. and that's what the likes of of, Breda, of Greta Thunberg is is pimping for. I mean, obviously she doesn't realise it. I I don't know what goes on in her head, but um, yeah, I I, 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 I don't blame her. I guess for what has been done to her. No, she was um, only a child when it when it started. Yeah. And She's I mean, a product of, of excessively narcissistic parents. Yeah, and um, I mean, my thing with that is that uh, as much as you want to, you know, talk about them and, and promote what they, uh, you know, their message and all that sort of stuff, I'm feeling that they're, they're just nothing more than useful idiots because... Mm, I couldn't agree more. ...they're being used to justify the ends that the the you know, elites or the ruling class or whatever it is that, that you know, wants to what they want to achieve. Now, just going back to her infamous speech in the UN, I mean, mm. you know, when she said about um, that we've stolen her future and how dare we and, and all that sort of stuff, well, um, I seem to remember that my future wasn't guaranteed because there was the whole concern about nuclear war, the whole Cold mm. War and, and everything like that when it was going to be nuclear Armageddon. And all that sort of stuff, and yet you, I grew up with that too. Yeah, yep. I don't recall any kids from my generation going out to the UN and, and pushing that. I think it was wasn't it Ronnie that started it by um, egging Gorby onto, um, you know, tearing down the wall and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it, it just you know it goes back to my thing is that these people and they they're just useful idiots, which in turn goes back to the agenda um, of the um, socialist slash Marxist-leaning political parties about reducing the yeah. voting age, which gets more useful idiots because when you're 16, what do you really know? The only stuff you know is the shit you've seen on TikTok or social media. Um, totally. And when you're 16, you see that most people – um, immediately around you have more stuff than you. Yes. And and because you're you're self obsessed and narcissistic and you don't understand the way the world works, you resent them and and you want their stuff. Yep. And so you know, I, and I, I remember thinking that way, like why look look at this look at this person driving an expensive car down the street while I'm driving a 1975 Gemini <laughs> that was my first car. I loved that car, yep. total rust bucket, but I loved it. Oh, I took such good care of it until it died. Um. Yeah. And so I. 
like I can remember being young and and thinking that that it wasn't fair that other people had more stuff than me. And then after you've lived a couple of decades as a, as an adult, you realise, yeah, um, people have more stuff than you. They actually worked. Mm. <laughs> and, yep. and what right do you have to take their stuff and say, oh, it's not fair that you have more stuff than me? I don't know. Maybe you should get out of bed in the morning and go work. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, by the way, just just on this whole notion of um, of useful idiots and so forth, I think one thing that's incredibly important for for us to do is to stop using their words, like capitalism. Capitalism, um, as I think I'm correct in this, one of your listeners might correct me if I'm wrong. I, I do believe that it was Karl Marx that actually coined that term. Mm. The term that we should be using is the free market. Mm. Okay, the free market, um, as in individuals voluntarily interacting with each other, individuals creating economic value, and other people uh, recognizing that that value and negotiating with the individual who produced that value to to uh, acquire the value that they produced. That's the free market. Yep. This this ridiculous capitalist notion as though as though there are classes you know because marxism of course is fundamentally about class warfare so this notion that that there are there is a capitalist class and then there's and then there's everyone else i mean um it is is a fact that has been commented commented upon by many many people that those advocating for socialism tend not to be the working class no. right the working class uh what what a they 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 work in order to um, save money in order to have stuff and their aspiration is that they or and if not they then their children or their grandchildren will actually have better lives than them which means uh, they'll have more stuff and they'll be part part of the middle class okay so the working class don't actually want to be permanently working class their aspiration is for their kids to become middle class mm. for their kid for their kids well for, for they themselves um, and and failing that their kids to to become wealthy, in other words, to have capital and to have opportunities to, you know, to pursue an entrepreneurial path. So, um, and meanwhile, you have these these sort of um, self-indulgent intellectuals saying, oh, I'm for socialism. Yeah, maybe you're for socialism because what you do, what, what you produce, in inverted commas, is of so little value to most human beings that you couldn't possibly make a living out of it in a truly free market. I mean, these these people who are employed as as um, academics in in gender studies departments, I mean, who would actually pay for that product in a truly free market? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, you know, that's that's the thing is that you know there, there's so much that is just pushing the same shit, and it's getting to the children. So, like these universities create whether it's creating teachers or, or um, executives. And my industry, the HR slash IR industry, is phenomenal for it. They we, mm. they were the first ones to push this die shit and, mm. Um, mm. you know, going woke and, and everything like that. And even in the early days, any comment about it was just – was not considered because this was the new religion and – you know, I made comments about it and all that sort of stuff because, you know, I just like pushing things and stirring shit and 
getting into trouble and I find it very difficult to believe. Cameron, you shock me. Getting ostracized <laughs> from all different groups and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's you know it, it's it's just one of those things that, that just freaking baffles me and I, I don't at the time I didn't understand. Now I understand where it comes from, um, which goes back looking at, at those people who were the first to push it. I think, man, you're just one of the useful idiots. You're going to be the next ones in the gulag once they've got what they want and so it's… The revolution yeah, eats its own, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's that thing is that, you know, the arse you kick on the way up is the one you're going to have to kiss on the way down and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's that thing is that all these die people that have just kicked people on their way up the food chain, mate, they're not going to be too well received when they're on their way down and they're going to be in the gulags with it as well. Um, yeah. So, but yeah. Anyway, um, that's a whole rant for another time. Um, being mindful of the time now, we might wrap it up. Um, so now, um, putting it out there, and for other people who are inclined um, like us with our particular views and, and beliefs and all that sort of stuff, what's the way forward? Um, obviously, no. I, I, I appreciate your your thoughts on um, you know going down the whole. Um, conversation with the, the the same principles and all that sort of stuff. And I'll admit, I didn't think about that. Normally, I've just shut down and walked away um, mm. and, and haven't engaged because my thoughts were that these are potentially lost causes. So there's no um, actually yeah, no. I won't I'm say not, lost causes. I'm I'll say true sure. believers. True believers. And yeah. it's hard to swing them from what their true belief is. And um, that that is true, and facts don't don't sway them. That mm. is for sure. I've I've certainly had that um, really demoralising experience of getting involved in some sort of discussion where where you know my discussion partner was was just firmly convinced that humans need meat and 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 meat eating was what caused our brains to grow big. Which is like okay, so lions are carnivores. Um, how come their brains didn't grow really huge? Can you mm. explain that? But no. No, they can't and they actually, you know, get a bit peeved if you point that out to them. But anyway, um, so, so yes, we, we don't persuade them with facts. I, I, think, I, I think that that Socratic questioning technique is absolutely the most powerful. So, you know, when you get into a conversation with, with a, a freedom lover and you ask them, like, why, why do you? believe in human freedom like what tell me about your philosophy tell me about what you um what why it is that you really object to the idea of of there being overlords you know people who are superior to us who get who get to boss us around and um um and then ask them so you know what's what's different in your mind between the right of all humans to be free to live our lives as we choose, so long as we don't aggress upon others. Uh, you know, what's what's different between us and, and animals? And, I mean, even even if you don't, you're unlikely to reach some some sort of resolution with them in that conversation. You've at least sown a seed in their mind, like mm. you've given them something to think about. And in the same way that, you know, most people I know who, who went vegan, they weren't convinced by their first exposure to it, right? Um, they they met a person who was vegan and they thought, oh, it's a bit weird. And then they, um, they saw a testimonial online of someone who went vegan and it cured their whatever the hell. And they went, hmm, that's interesting. And then after the third, fourth, tenth, twentieth, whatever exposure to the idea, they went, 
maybe this maybe this is something I could try. And so, you know, I, I think it's the same with all sort of major paradigm shifts. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a major paradigm shift. I mean, the notion that, number one, um, humans need to eat animal products in order to be healthy, that number two, uh, we have an inherent right to do so because, I don't know, God or, or nature or something or other, um, Three, that it's – it's uh, so what, what does Melanie Joy talk about? Normal, natural, and necessary. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so uh, that, that's the other one. Oh, you know, humans have always done it, um, question mark, always. Like, you know, what are we talking about here? Um, how far back in our evolutionary history do, do you want to go? Like to all the way back when we were tree-dwelling tree, tree primates or – you know, at what at what point in our evolution as a species? Yeah, and, and are we talking about Cro-Magnon, or are we talking about Neanderthal, and are we talking about Homo sapiens, or we, uh, Homo erectus, yeah. Homo habilis? Which ones are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, which human grouping? Because there are human groupings who have eaten an almost exclusively animal-based diet, like the Inuit, and then there are human groupings who have eaten a, a far more plant-centric diet. So, you know, which which humans? Mm. <laughs> Where? At what time in history? You know. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, but as I say, th- this idea that that animal product consumption um, and also the the keeping of animals, animal husbandry, which is like it's <laughs> a freaking weird word, isn't it? Animal yeah. husbandry, what? Um, that 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 these activities are normal, natural, and necessary. These are really deeply ingrained ideas, just you know, carved into the human psyche. And we we have quite the job ahead of us to to get people, you know, to get other freedom-minded people to really, really think about their their attitudes toward this and you know what 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 their philosophical underpinnings are and um it, it, i mean to me i it, it it would it would be nice if we could turn the world vegan okay wouldn't that be lovely mm. i don't think that that is even a remote prospect i'd be pretty happy with you know more people eating a hell of a lot less animals Mm. Okay, that that would that would um, it, it's kind of like that equation between um, turning one in a hundred people vegan. Okay, how many animals do you save if you turn one in a hundred people vegan, versus getting fifty of those people to eat fifty percent less meat? Okay, so the 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 net the net impact on on animal suffering is actually much greater if you get more people to eat less animals. Mm. So I'd, I'd be I'd be pretty happy with that as a starting point, <laughs> and, and then you know, and then and then I guess we just have to keep engaging in these philosophical discussions where we really really get people to examine their own belief systems, as as you and I had to do when we took the step of going vegan. You know, I was raised in a meat eating household. I bet you were too. Yeah. yeah. And and at the point where you go vegan, like what what gets you to do that? is you've really interrogated your own belief system and you've decided that it's it's actually not fit for purpose mm. that you you have to change uh, your what well, you you've discovered that there's that there is a belief that you have which is that life is um, sacred to give it a religious spin uh, precious um, um, if you don't want to put religious words on it uh, but, but life is special mm. and the, 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 the taking of life when it is unnecessary 
to take that life is morally reprehensible. Like when you really come to groups with that, thou, sh- thou shalt not kill, right? What was that yeah. first commandment? Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't know. It's, it's in there yeah. somewhere. It, 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 it's right near the head of the list anyway. I know that much. Um, thou shalt not kill. Okay. Uh, why not? Because life is special. Mm. And once you realize that, yeah, like that, that's a really fundamental moral standard that, that, that people have. And yet, you know, if you continue to consume animal products, you're actually, you're not killing yourself, but you're condoning that killing. You're facilitating that killing. Like, yeah, you know, I, I had to come to terms with the disconnect between what I believed was, was morally correct and my own behavior. That's what we're asking other people to do, and it's not easy. Mm, mm. Um. Yeah, and and I mean, I don't even think that the the way forward for us is going to be easy either. Um, but then again, um, that's what makes life interesting. And that you know, if we had everything handed to us on a plate, well, you know, what sort of lives would we would we have? And and would we appreciate the um, the hard won battles? But anyway, yeah, we would not. No, mm-hmm. we wouldn't. So um, might end it there. Thank you so much for that, Robin. Um, it has it has been really good for me. Um, learned a lot of stuff as well, and, and I hope everyone else does. And um, if you've got this far, and you do want to know more, reach out to one of us, and um, happy to give you any other information or, or answer any other questions that you have. Uh, yeah, and, and things like that. Absolutely, I'd love I'd love this to become a really vibrant discussion, a respectful discussion, but a vibrant discussion. You know, so if if there are uh, ideas that that we've raised today that that you know challenge your thinking or you think we're wrong, like let us know respectfully and arguing in complete sentences, yeah, yeah. <laughs> preferably. Yeah. <laughs> no ad hominem attacks. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I mean, it comes down to is that you know the, the the study comes out. Oh, but this study says something else. Well. You know, if we've learned anything over the last two years, it's that studies can be influenced by those who support it. Now, I'm not saying Without that we, we should discredit mm. either studies. But I think it's something that we should all look at critically, um, mm. compare it to, as you've mentioned, the ethics that we claim to live by or that, that we do like to live by and then compare that to how would we feel. And um, you know, I, I'm a big sci-fi sci-fi fan, and um, one of the things um, Stargate, uni- uh, no, it's not Stargate Atlantis. Um, it's these humans land on another planet, and there's the wraith that they just harvest humans. They go around mm. and kill humans, and in the interaction with the humans, they turn around and said, "Well, you do it to cattle, you do it to animals. Mm. Mm-hmm. How different is it?" So yes. So that, that's the ultimate hypothetical, isn't it? Yes. Like if aliens came to Earth and said, well, you know, we're, we're superior to you and our intellectual capacity is, is far greater than yours, therefore that gives us the right to, you know, to farm you and, 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 and send you off to slaughter and eat you. Like, <laughs> how would we argue with them? Yeah. yeah <laughs> and that's the thing is that most people can't. Because yeah. How can you? I mean, the superior technology and, and you know, and can't, you know, I won't go fully down that road at all, but my thing is that, um, oh, we're apex predators. No, we're not. No. We're not. We can't no. survive in any environment with just, you know, without taking some sort of artificial environment with us. Oh, but that's only mm. because we've learned to use tools. Well, that doesn't make us an apex predator. 
No, look, humans humans are a phenomenally adaptive species. Certainly, humans have have learned to live in far uh, far more environments than any other animal species has has learned to live in, um, and that you know that is a testimony to our our. Uh, I'm not, I'm not even going to say superiority of intellect. I'd say ingenuity. Yeah, to our ingenuity. Um, we also can't navigate, you know, vast distances uh, like, like whales can without external aids, right? Mm. Um, we, we, we can't echolocate like bats. So there are all sorts of, of faculties that other animal species have that, that we lack. And, and of course, most people say, oh, well, who needs to echolocate? Well, yeah, so if bats rule the world and, and <laughs> in, again, some weird hypothetical universe where bats rule the world, they will probably see us as being an inferior species because, oh, my God, they can't even echolocate. Can you believe it? Talk I mean, about inferior. Looking at that, the whales, like we can't even go down the street without street signs. <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> seriously, and you, they travel oceans. Yes, and, and return to the place where they were carved. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and it's the thing, you know, we, we can't travel down the street without street signs. We can't cross a road without a little fucking green light telling us that it's safe to yeah. cross or telling the cars to stop so we can cross. <laughs> so it's just like... Really? Yeah, right. And we're, we're the superior species. Yeah. Yes. I mean, all of all of these notions of superiority really need to be challenged. I mean, clearly we have some faculties that, that other animals um, do not have, um, particularly our, our command of, of written language. Um, animals... Capacity to communicate is is actually a lot more. Or sorry, let me be more specific. The capacity of of, of certain animal species to communicate in great detail is is far superior to what we have believed up to this point. Um, there was a book that was recently published called the sounds of nature or something like that, which goes into quite a lot of detail about the research that's been done on the, the communicative richness of, of bats and whales, among other species. They're, they're just the two that stood out to me that I can remember. Um, they do communicate. They, they have dialects and they actually um, communicate to, to individuals in their, you know, family group or, or whatever have you in a way that suggests that, um, I mean, this, this, might be accused of anthropomorphizing, but in a way that suggests that these animals actually have names that mm. they and that they they know each other's names. Like there there are particular patterns of vocalization that are used to to signal a particular individual, as if to say, you know, hey Fred, um, there's good fish over here, or something like that. You know, mm. um, so so yes, there's the, the notion that there is something intrinsically different about us, and therefore we have rights. That that non-human animals don't have that that is built on a very incomplete picture of the the, the capacities and the faculties of animal species. Mm. Mm. Oh. All right, we better Absolutely. leave it there. Yes, hey? yes. Well, I, was, I was just going to say we'll leave it there. I'm I'm, I'm not going to mention anything else, um, just in case we go down that um, wormhole, that abandoned rabbit hole, or rabbit warren, or that um, anything. That, that, you know, suburban rail loop tunnel that, that is going to go to nowhere <laughs> in Victoria. Um, so, yes. All right. 
Um, all right, we'll leave it there. I'll include a link to all your socials and everything. Yes, like check that. me out at uh, robintutor.substack.com or my work website, empowertotalhealth.com.au. And, uh, yeah, we, we welcome comments, hey? Let's, yes. let's get the dialogue going. Let's wait for the feedback. I've got my... Kevlar on, so I'm, I'm happy for the flame wars to begin. <laughs> All, right, All right, let's hit it. Cheers. Okay, I'll talk to you again soon, Cameron. Thanks a lot, Robin. All right. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fifth Estate, the news behind the headlines. Until the next episode of The Fifth Estate releases, we'd love for you to leave a review wherever you go to for quality podcasts. And we'll keep holding those in power in check.